this past week the story of the man who was homeless with a golden voice. You all paid attention to that story? And how he, he, you know, he uh, just happens to be a homeless man, and uh, because of some choices that he made with drugs and alcohol, among other things, he ends up being homeless. And he stands on the corner, and he's begging and uh, asking for money, and he has his little cardboard sign that says, uh, you know, give me a dollar, and I'll, I've been blessed with a golden voice. And so one of these guys drives by, stops, he has a video camera, and uh, videotapes the guy as he's using his golden voice. And, is this on? Can you hear me? Okay. So, okay. And uh, what happens then is it goes on YouTube. Of course, it becomes a viral sensation. I think that was on Monday or Tuesday. And then the next thing you know, this guy is on the Today Show. A few days later, he has skyrocketed. He's now, speaking of, as we're talking about ethnic American food, Kraft macaroni and cheese now has made him uh, their spokesperson. And he, they asked him, they said, you know, what is going to be different? You were in the radio industry before. What's going to happen? He goes, but now I know where I've come from. He talks about that, and, and it made me think of the song that we just sang, uh, Amazing Grace, where it talks about that saved a wretch like me. You know, many of us can forget where we come from when we come to Christ. Uh, at one time or another, we thought we, when you came to Christ, hopefully we saw ourselves as that prodigal son. We knew how bad we've been. We know the sins that we've done. No one needs to remind us. But all too often, the longer that we have been in Christ, we become as the elder brother in the prodigal son story. And we start pushing people away and making them have to do all of these external things. We don't let grace get to them. We want to be the judges and the juries rather than the ones who bring them to the emergency room of grace. I've been thinking of that and thinking of that song, Amazing Grace, I mean, most of us are at least familiar with the song. It's one of the most famous songs the world over. You don't have to be in church to at least be familiar with the song. But what most people don't know is the author of that song was a man by the name of John Newton. John Newton was a slave trader in the uh, 18th century. And he had come to faith in Christ, and he was working on a, on a slave boat, I mean, slave ship. And, and his conversion, though definite, as many of us grow in sanctification, where he started seeing the evils of slavery. And he left slavery and became a pastor. And he wrote many different songs. Actually, when he wrote this song, it was quite forgotten in Great Britain at the time. It wasn't very famous. He had other songs that achieved much more fame and notoriety. And it didn't, that song didn't really take root in Great Britain, but took root in the United States. And it's been expanded even over the years. It became one of the uh, songs that the, the African-American community had during uh, slavery in the 19th century. As a matter of fact, even the last verse was added to it. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, that verse. But it's amazing to me, even as this song keeps continuing being sung over and over, some don't like the lyrics, especially the part that saved a wretch like me. That doesn't go well with our modern self-understanding of who we think we are. We like to think ourselves of a lot, lot better, having good self-esteem. We don't want to think bad about ourselves after all. It's what our world teaches. We need to have good self-esteem. We do that with children all the time. We don't want to harm their self-esteem. That's the popular notion in education circles today in child rearing. You've got to help their self-esteem. You know what? Actually, the Bible doesn't say anything about self-esteem. I, I, I hate to say that, but it's true. 
Nothing about self-esteem. Matter of fact, in talking with educators, they said one of the greatest detriments in the last in childrearing in the last 20, 25 years is the self-esteem movement. Because these children now have no concept of right and wrong. It's all about who they are, and I am right, and, and you can't say that I'm wrong. See, we can't look at ourselves any lower. We want to put ourselves on such pedestals that we become gods and goddesses of our own world, of determining right and wrong. I was listening to John Piper once talk after he had been arrested. I don't know if many of you knew this or not, but he had been arrested one point in time for, a, uh, for um, uh, civil disobedience at an abortion clinic, just standing out there protesting. That was it. And he was arrested and put in jail. And he thought that if I could convince people that this was a child, then they wouldn't get an abortion. And he said, I'm sitting in this jail cell, and there was a, a nurse uh, that was walking around, that was working at the police facility, and he said, I'm, I'm dialoguing with her, and she, she had said, she goes, we know it's a child. You don't have to convince us it's a child. We know it's a child, but what's the other alternative? He said, it was at that moment in time that I realized that what was going on was not about whether the argument of whether or not it was a child. It was whether or not people could be determiners of their own destiny. He said, in essence, the women were setting themselves up as gods and goddesses to determine who lives and who dies. That was a realization for him, a wake-up call. And see, many of us want to do that. We think we are the authors of our own destiny. Carpe diem. Seize the day, we say. But the reality is, is we're not. The Bible shows that we are sinners. It uses that word very powerfully. And I think that's what the essence that John Newton, who was working with William Cowper when he penned those words, that saved a wretch like me. Didn't need to convince John Newton what he had done. He knew the evils that he had been a part of. And many of us in our heart of hearts, whether or not we grew up in a Christian home or whether we came to Christ later in life, or maybe we, we know how bad we have been. And did you know, though, that people today are trying to redo the lyrics to that song? Rather than saved a wretch like me, we want to say, uh, some have written that saved and strengthened me, or save a soul like me, or that saved and set me free, rather than have the word wretch because of its implications that we were so bad. But we can't have a Savior until we understand how bad we were as sinners. And that's what Paul is reminding us of today. He says, I want to remind you where you came from. I not only want to remind you of where you came from, I want to show you what God did, what you could not do, but what God did in saving you and transforming you. So hopefully you're with me in the book of Titus in the New Testament. If you have a Bible, if you don't, try to see it off one or just listen in. In Titus chapter 3, I'll be reading from verses 3 through 8 in the English Standard Version. It is our custom to stand here for the honor of reading God's Word, so I would invite you to, invite you to stand as we read the Holy Spirit speaking through the Apostle Paul to the young pastor Titus. Verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, 
whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Let's ask for God's blessing on our time together. Our Father and our God, we come before you knowing that we are wretches. Lord, and if if there's someone here that doesn't think that they have been, I pray that you show them the reality of their heart, that you might take this message and show it up to their faces a mirror, that they might see the imperfections and the sins. Lord, may we all stand and wonder anew at what you have done in our lives and what you did through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. How you saw us in our and the depth of our depravity, and yet you decided to love us and set your seal upon us by sending your Son unto us. So Lord, be in our time today. Convict us, bring us, draw us to yourself, and show us the reality of where we have come from and what you desire from us and what you have purposed us to do. We ask your blessing on our service time, this message time particularly. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I'd like to break this down piece by piece, and I would encourage you to follow with me along as we go into our... Uh, go verse by verse. Let's start in verse 3. The Apostle Paul is writing to young Titus, remember, who is pastoring on the island of Crete. And he is uh, saying how they are to behave. He just had finished a long section in uh, chapter 2 and verse 3 on the different roles that people were to assume and pursue. Both older men, younger men, older women, younger women, slaves. And he, he wants to make sure that these Christian Cretans, <laughs> if you will, were living what they, they believed. They were living it out. And the, the reason being, uh, the reason why they're doing it, he wanted them to understand why, so they wouldn't forget where they came from. He wants them to first of all understand, and let's look at verse 3 here. He says, I want you to understand that we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. He's in essence saying, hey, I want you to remember that we, have, we all have had a problem with sin. Every one of us. There is not one person who has not struggled with sin in their life. If you can say that I have never struggled with sin, I would say I disagree with you and I know the sin that you struggle with. And that's lying. Because you're lying to yourself. You are. Everyone in the heart of, in heart of hearts. I remember sitting in high school English classes and we were debating whether man was born good or bad. I remember that. I don't know if you ever remember being in those discussions and there were all these different opinions. Some of us, oh, man is born good or, or man is born just with a blank slate or man is born evil. The Bible is unequivocal. We are born in sin. We all have a propensity to sin. Every single person, from the little itty-bitty infant who is so cute, then throws a temper tantrum and lies. I mean, actually, we were talking last night with some old friends of ours, and they said, we remember when uh, your younger daughter, uh, she says, we were out at like an ice cream place. And my daughter was two and a half years old at the time, and my wife had gotten her some sugar-free ice cream because we didn't want to give her a lot of sugar because she goes nuts. And we sat down, and she's eating the ice cream, and my wife gets up for a second. Our friends are sitting across the table, and, my two and a, she was two and a half at the time, looked across, saw that Mommy had turned her back, and reached over, pulled her ice cream over, and ate two spoons, and then pushed it back. I mean, do we not have sinful natures? And she, I mean, two and a half years old. No one taught her to do that. 
she was hiding it. She knew she wasn't doing what she was supposed to do. Every one of us have a problem with sin. Now, what Paul wants us to understand, though, is how pervasive this is. Look, we were once foolish. It's the first word he uses. Without understanding, we were disobedient, led astray. And the word here indicates, he said, led astray, it's, it's led away by false guides. See, we see the sin problem affects our attitudes. That's the first thing we need to understand. It affects our attitudes. We were fools and arrogantly fools. Disobedient, willfully led astray. I think about some of the guys today that are being uh, really put up by the atheist movement. You have like Richard Dawkins. He wrote a book called The God Delusion. Here's this guy that has all of this, this education. He's at Oxford, and a lot of people read him. And he's not even talking about science anymore. He was originally talking about science and biology. No longer is he even writing about that. He is on a mission to extinguish any belief in God whatsoever. And I look at that. In the Bible, do you know what the Bible calls individuals like that? Fools. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And I don't know about you, but I have encountered people that are just fools. And they say, you're brainwashed. And I say, well, you need to look in the mirror. Because I think I see. Matter of fact, it, it pains me to see what I see. Do you think I delight sometimes in seeing this? To seeing how my brothers and sisters are turning their back on God and the judgment they are incurring and knowing they are on the express train to hell? Do you think that's good? It's easier for me just to say ignorance is bliss and not care at all. Everybody going on their happy way. The fact is, is God has spoken and he has said that we are all sinners and we all have the wrong attitudes. We're all foolish, disobedient, led astray. We were all in this category one time or another. We're all blind. Paul says this very clearly in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. He says, in their case, the God of this world, referring to Satan, who's known as the God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He blinds us, and He continues to seeks to blind us in any way that He can. Whether He wants so that we don't see who Jesus Christ is, he will, try to, he will try to put down Christian leaders. He will try to make Christians look foolish. He will try to, to just make other ways look more acceptable. He will try to make, make you not even think about it. So you're so addicted to your pleasures and your pursuits that you don't see the reality of who God is. He will do anything in His power so that you don't see Jesus Christ. Anything. He will do anything in His power to keep you blind. I'm amazed at how people in this world are blinded. I'm reminded of the story of the man born blind. One of the most fascinating stories in all of Scripture in John 9. I don't know if you remember this story or not. Jesus encounters this man born blind. He, he takes some of the, the dirt from the ground and mud and he spits on it. And then, in essence, reforms the man. Because remember, man is formed from the dust of the ground. So he's reforming this man's eyes. And everybody finds out that this man born blind can see. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, are really troubled by this. Really troubled. And they said, they bring this guy in. They said, tell us. How do you, how'd you receive your sight? What did he do? He's like, well, he took mud and he put it on my eyes and then I could see. We're like, well, how, how did he do it? They're like, I, I told you. And they're like, well, you weren't even born blind. Go get his parents. He's an adult. His parents come in. They're a little bit nervous because they found out, they learned that if anybody believed that Jesus is the Christ, they would be put out of the synagogue. So they ask him, was he born blind? He said, yes, he was. And they said, well, how did, he, how did Jesus heal this guy? And he goes, ask him. He's of age. Ask him. So they bring him back in again. They said, how did he heal you? 
Because he did it on the Sabbath day, and to them, to keep the Sabbath was more important to be restored to wholeness in sight and being restored to the community. They, they hated Jesus so badly. So they asked this man again, and they even charged him. They said, give glory to God. We know this man's a sinner. And I like his answer, one of the classic answers in all Scripture. He says, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, though, that though I was blind, now I see. He comes back to the testimony. I, I don't know all that stuff you're saying about it. I don't know any of those details. But one thing I know is God transformed me. He gave me sight. I've been restored to the community. I can see my parents. I don't have to beg on the corner any longer. I've been brought and transformed by that man. And they couldn't handle it. And they threw him out of the synagogue. And see, the reality is, is that here these religious leaders were blind, even though they had physical sight, to the reality and truth of who Jesus was. But a blind man could see who Jesus was. Think of blind Bartimaeus. He was sitting by the roadside in Jericho. And he said, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David. And it said, they, they ran over to him and they said, Quiet, the teacher's passing by. And he gets louder. I love that. It gets louder because he knew who Jesus was. He cried out all the more. See, he knew where he was. We know that sin affects our attitudes. That we're foolish, disobedient led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Let's focus on that statement for a minute. Slaves to various passions and pleasures. See, this sin problem affected our appetites. Our appetites. Now, we all have various physical appetites. We have desires for food, drink, love, sex. All these things are, are appetites that we have been created with. But see, we all pass through the fall, and they become distorted. See, we were slaves to them. We wanted to just, we were like that mouse in the experiment who, who was hooked up to morphine, and every time he pressed the little button, he would get more morphine, so he just keeps pressing and pressing and pressing and pressing. See, many of us are like that with the pleasures we experience. We don't know our limits. We keep pressing and pressing and pressing. We want to keep doing that sin and getting that high and wanting that, you know, we, we, every, it becomes an idol in our lives. We're so focused on gratifying that sin. We're slaves to it. We can't stop. We can't stop. We all have a propensity to certain sins. As James said in James chapter 1, he said, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Every one of us has a propensity to a certain sin. Every single person in this room. For some of you, it's drugs. Some of you, it's, it's food. We don't talk about that very often. I mean, alcohol is the easy one because of the behavior. You can be drunk and everybody knows it. But you could be a glutton and hide it. Or you could be addicted to bad relationships. You know that? You're addicted to love. You, want, you love love and you want it so bad that you'll make it up as an idol and you will give yourself away in pursuit of it. It doesn't matter. We all have a propensity to certain sins. Every single person in this room. Your sin might be different than mine or different from the other person, but the fact is we all have a sin problem and affects every part of it it affects our attitude it affects our appetites and it also affects our actions see look back at the text he says we passed our days in malice and envy hated by others and hating one another so it affected our 
attitude, our appetites, and then our actions. We don't like other people. We don't want to be around other people, or we're constantly envying other people. We're always trying to keep up with the Joneses. Everybody's got a little bit more. We all have somebody we look up to that we want to be like or have what they have. But sometimes it starts to become hate and envy. We're hating others, and we're hated by others. So the Bible says we pass away our days just thinking and stewing on it. It's terrible. So sin pervades every part of our being. We were pretty hopeless, that is, until God intervened. Look at verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. See, God's supreme love act was sending His Son, Jesus Christ. The wording here, appear, it's often used of the suns or stars appearing in the sky. I don't know if you've ever got to get away for a little bit, go over to Silver Birch Ranch in Wisconsin, and, and when it gets really dark at night, and then you start to see the stars. We don't see stars, Aurora. We don't see stars much. The, the street lights kind of prevent it, reflect off the ground, up in the sky, and we see a little orange haze and a couple stars here and there. But go out there and see how beautiful and wonderful it is. Just get out pitch black in the middle of a clear night and see how gorgeous that is. And that's the picture. The sun or the stars appearing. Or, or if you've stayed up all night or you get up early in the morning and you see the sun just come up over the horizon and the bright light that's shining. That's what the picture is. When the, the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior, appeared. There's this beautiful appearance of Christ. Now, this, this, uh, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, hear the word loving kindness. It means love of mankind, love toward man, generosity. What we're seeing here is that Christ is the supreme love act. Remember, goodness and loving kindness. Goodness, we have the word good. Remember when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and he said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response, Why do you call me good? There is none good but God alone. In essence, he was saying, Are you prepared to recognize me as God? Because I am God's supreme love act toward man. The greatest expression that love could ever know is what it gives. And God gives Himself for us. For the goodness and kindness of God our Savior appeared. Jesus Christ, born in flesh, assuming the flesh of man to win man. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. Paul wants us to know that He is that Jesus Christ is the only person who saves. I mean, we have a sin problem, but just in our sin problem, that means nothing. We need to have a Savior. For Jesus Christ came to, save, to seek and to save that which was lost. You can't have a Savior until you realize you're lost. And He's the only way of salvation. The goodness and kindness of God our Savior appeared. There is no other way. I don't know how else to put this. I don't know how loud to get. There is no other way of salvation. Studying the world religions, there is no other way. Buddha can't save. Allah can't save. You can't blow yourself up and get, expect God to love you for it. That's trying to work your way to salvation. There is no other way. No, it doesn't matter how good you think you are. Or, and we all think that. I mean, that's the, one of the greatest lies we ever, we, people think today. I'm amazed by it. Well, if I'm good enough at the end of my life, I'll be okay. You can never, ever be good enough. Never. You can't be good enough. Never. See, that's an insult and a slap in the face of God. We can never be good enough. Only Jesus Christ can save. 
And that's according to the book of Acts chapter 12, chapter 4, verse 12. There is no other name under heaven given unto men by which we must be saved except Jesus Christ. He is the only one who will save. Not everybody gets into heaven. Broad is the pathway that leads to destruction and narrow is the road that leads to eternal life. We were hopeless. That's what Paul wants us to know. Let's look at the next part here. He wants us to understand the principle regarding our status and how bad we were. Look at verse 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. Now let that sink in. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but because of his, according to His own mercy. So Paul wants us to understand our status, as it were. We couldn't save ourselves. We were so bad, there was nothing good about us. I mean, see, we want to see ourselves as good. But see, we have to see ourselves as John Newton did. And even at the end of his life, John Newton, his memory was starting to fade, and he said, you know, one thing that I know is that I'm a sinner and that God loves me because the Bible tells me so. That was the heart of the gospel, that God loves us, but not because of anything we've done. There was nothing lovely about who we were, nothing at all. We were entirely rebellious. We were completely lost without exception. Without exception, as Isaiah, the prophet says in Isaiah 64, that all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags in the sight of God. You know, I stood at the casket of several friends and preached a great deal of sermon messages, and more often than not, I know that that person is not in heaven. But constantly, I hear people say, well, they were a pretty good person, not in the sight of God. Well, they were good. They did this. They were a nice guy. I don't care. I hate to, to be, I don't mean to be a jerk. I'm just telling you what the Word of God says. For me not to tell you is showing the, the biggest act of hate towards you. I'm pleading with you to see that we are all sinners that are in need of salvation. We cannot save ourselves. He saved us. Look at verse 5 through 7. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. We couldn't work our way to God. We couldn't do enough confession, do enough repentance, do enough grace, do enough good deeds. We couldn't do it. But according to His own mercy, it was an act of mercy by sending His Son, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. See, what Paul's doing here is he's describing the parts of salvation. The parts of salvation. See, Paul declares three important parts that I want us to pay attention to. Now, we have to be very careful in separating these because they're things that happen at a moment, instantaneously. And it's hard to differentiate between the two. Theologians have done this for for millennia. They've tried to lay it out, step one, step two, step three. But it's one moment in time that it all happens. And they're all together, and it's hard to see and differentiate them. But here's what God is showing us. He's showing us the three important parts. First of all, there's rebirth that occurs. He caused us to be born again by the Spirit of God, born from above. We've been cleansed by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The word for washing, it's bath, washing, simply that. And then we have the next word, born again, a birth again, regeneration, new birth. It's... uh, We're transformed. Remember Jesus' interaction with the Pharisee Nicodemus at night in John chapter 3. 
This man comes to see Jesus at night, and Jesus answered him, and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, he was confused, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. That God's Spirit enters into us. God of His mercy brings the sin, our sinful condition to an aware, our awareness, and we see our need for a Savior that He has made known, and then we, by trusting in Him, he, he puts His Spirit in us to understand who He is, and we embrace Him. We are born again. We have the Spirit of God within us. God causes us to be born again by the Spirit of God. Regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. See, we've gone through renewal. The word means just renewing, making new. We are brand new creatures. He causes us to be new creatures. He births us. We couldn't birth ourselves, spiritually speaking. We didn't decide to be born. Yes, we are to embrace. We are to repent and believe the kingdom of God. And it's that divine tension that we aren't so sure how it works completely. Some have tried to iron it out. I look at it as a play. I don't know if you've ever seen this play. Uh, It was done several years ago called Noises Off. It was a play within a play. And the first act of the play takes place as the cast is learning their lines. I mean, they're, they're doing their, their run-throughs the night before the performance. And we see the performance from the, from the audience's point of view. That's the first act. The second act takes place six months later, and they turn the entire set around. And it's, this play takes a place in a house of two stories. And the actors are coming in at different doors like this through the entire thing. It's really an exercise in your head trying to keep up with this play that's going on. But that's the second act. And you see the play, though, from the actor's perspective, from behind the stage. The same play that they were doing in the first act, it's the second act, but from behind the stage. And then the third act of the play is several months later, and it's turned around again. See, that's what the Bible does in us understanding salvation. See, we live life in the front of the stage. But sometimes through the Word of God, God turns the stage around and we get to see it from God's point of view. That God foreordained since the beginning of the world, since the foundation of the world. And yet, He still turns the stage around. We only get a glimpse, a peek, and then we have to go and live life, though, on the front of the stage. We have to live our choices because we don't get to see the entire mind of God. We only got a glimpse when we see that God shows into the foundation of the world, we still make our choices in the here and now. We have to choose, as it were. We know that God chooses some and not others. We don't understand why and how it's all orchestrated. But we know, according to the Word of God, that He does that. But yet we still live our life in the stage knowing that what's going behind is of God. But yet we are still doing our lines and making our choices and living our life, as it were. So God, though, does he, he renews us. He transforms us. He makes us new. He's the one who births us. I, I think of this, uh, the first church I lived in, I lived in a, uh, I mean, not church I lived in, the church I served in, we had a parsonage. And we moved in, the, the, the previous pastor had been there for 40 years, and we uh, moved our stuff in. And down in the basement was this old desk, an old school teacher's desk. And it had been down there for over 40 years. It had been through floods. It, the kids had played on it, had holes 
all through it. They just left it behind. It was pretty worthless. They didn't even bother to throw it out. It was really heavy. It was bulky. They were an older couple, so they just left it for us. I looked at that desk, and I needed a desk. And I, I looked at it, and I was just getting into word working, and I thought, I could restore this desk. So I went out, and I bought some sanding equipment, and I, I sanded it by hand, and I stripped it down, and I patched the holes, and I put it all together, and then I, I, I put a new whole new, uh, var, uh, you know, just stained it and put a varnish and lacquer on it and new knobs on it, and it came out, and it was beautiful. So, you know, that's what God does to us. We, we've been left behind. The rest, refuse of the world. People have just forgotten about us. And then God of His own mercy says, I'm going to make them new creatures. I'm going to renew them. I'm going to restore them. I'm going to make them brand new for my use. What the world has done, the choices, the sinful actions, the things that happened to them, I'm going to intercede and I'm going to make them brand new and a whole new purpose. And then I'm going to display it for everybody to see. See, that's what God does. He renews us. First, He gives us new birth. He renews us. He makes us new creatures. And then He justifies us. Justifies us. That's what the text says. Justified by His grace. We have been, verse 7, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. See, that's the next step in our salvation. Our justification, it's a legal term. God has declared us legally righteous in His sight. Romans 5.1 says that, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 30, And those whom He predestined, that's behind the curtain, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. That's the peak behind the curtain. He says that, We've been even glorified. We're already in the presence of God, but it's a futuristic tense that's already been perfected. We're waiting for the day when that will happen. He will bring us safely into His kingdom. It's entirely of God. Or Romans chapter 10, verse 10, For with the heart one believes and is justified, declared legally righteous in the sight of God, because we have trusted in Christ, that He has paid the price for our sins, and then God imputes to us His righteousness. We don't have any good in and of ourselves. So let's look back at verse 7 and 8 again. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Heirs. We are heirs of, a, uh, of, ho- um, heirs of the kingdom of God according to the hope of eternal life. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 8, verse 16 through 17. He says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. See, Paul wants us to understand that we have the prospect of sonship, being children of God. We are His children. Can you imagine that? I mean, I think of some of these different celebrities we see that are always adopting children from countries, whether it's, and I'm not condoning their lifestyle, I'm just telling you what they do, whether it's Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie going to Namibia and you know, they adopt these children or from Malaysia or wherever, and these kids are coming out of squalor, and here they are in these really wealthy celebrities' homes. You know, with God, it's so much more greater. We have been adopted. He went out and found us in our poverty and brought us into His family. And then we are recipients and beneficiaries of everything that He has done. He has adopted us and given us the hope of sonship. And that, this prospect of sonship gives us hope 
here on earth, we have a purpose for a life in the here and now. Why? Because we have hope for eternity. See, our hope to do and have life in the here and now is connected to our hope in eternity. The two are intimately connected. Too many of us, though, are trying to find our hope on earth. I mean, we have hope on earth in that we know that what we do will be rewarded in eternity. We don't try to build our kingdoms on earth or God's kingdom on earth, not by buildings or, or uh, budgets or anything like that, but through and in the hearts of people as they people repent and embrace Christ is the kingdom of God being built. As that person orders his or her life according to the word of God and his kingdom and his reign is shown in their actions as the Holy Spirit takes over in their life. And they demonstrate by their loving obedience that they are children of God, participating in the life of God. See, God invites us to participate in the divine life. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, And we are partakers of His glory, or the divine nature, in essence. And that one day we shall be like Jesus, because we shall see Him face to face. We shall see Him as He is. We don't talk about that concept very often. In old theological terms, it was called divinization. Not, not demonization, but becoming divine. Becoming like, somehow, in some mystery, like God. Not that we become God, we don't. But in some, some inescapable way, we become partakers and be in the presence of God and being like Christ. These glorified bodies. I don't understand the mystery of it. I know that we will be given the task of even judging angels. How and why? I don't know. It's God within His mercy. Mercy, Another peek behind the curtain. The mystery that He has revealed to us. We have hope for now on earth. And this hope is focused on on eternity. We can live our lives for Christ without fear of what tomorrow holds. Without fear whatsoever. C.S. Lewis wrote about this, and I paraphrase. He says, It is precisely those who are most focused on the world to come who are most useful in this world. It's a pretty big statement. Some people think that those who are so focused on eternity don't do anything in the here and now. He says, No, no. Those who have done the most in this world, such as the John Newton who helped abolish slavery, slavery in Great Britain along with William Wilberforce because he was so focused on eternity that he could make, and make these bold statements in the here and now. Look at verse 8 with me. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. See, Paul gives us a pattern that we're to strive for. A pattern that we are to strive for. Look at verse 8 again. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. It's a lot of these things referring back to what he had just talked about, how we are to live our life. Also referring to the grace of God that has appeared in chapter 2, bringing salvation for all people. So that those who have believed in God, placed their trust, trust in God, have been washed by the Holy Spirit of God. Not that they are perfect, not that we are perfect. We are positionally perfect in the sight of God. Although we are to be progressing on in what we call our sanctification, are we becoming more like God or the people that God desires us to be? But we who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. It's setting our will to determine to do these things, to speak confidently, to insist, to confirm. That's what he's saying here. To insist on these things, to make a point of. I desire to do. It's a continual action that's being shown within the the Greek. To take thought of, to give heed to. 
It's, a, it's expressing the result of purpose. Since we have believed in God, we want to do these things. That we might be careful to devote ourselves to good works. To be careful in busying ourselves. The word here has a technical meaning. To pr- practice a profession. To doing them repeatedly. Good works. Not just once in a while, but doing them all the time. Because that is profitable, excellent and profitable for people. See, what he's saying here is there's a pattern that we're to be putting into place. What is this pattern? Well, this pattern involves our witness. That's the first thing, our witness. Our witness. Now, all too often we try to separate these three things that I'm about to say. I'm going to give them to you one by one. Witness, our walk, and our works. Our works. And we try to highlight one or the other too often at the neglect of the other two. But this is the three together. See, we're to be testifying about what God has done in and through us. Now, we are to speak the truth of Christ. Not just live it, but speak and act. Speak. Speak. Now, all too often, though, we quote St. Francis, who said this, Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Sounds good. And while true, people use that as an excuse not to speak about Christ. We hide behind that statement. See, Jesus doesn't allow us to do that. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them. Teaching them. Speaking the truth of God. Speaking the truth in love. Remember, Christ was the very first spoken word. God's declarative act was, in the beginning, was the Word. And the Word was God. The Word was with God. It's a declarative act, a declarative statement. Christ is the very first spoken thing because He Himself is the one speaking. Because everything was made through Him. Not anything, nothing was made except through Christ. Another mystery that we are given in John chapter 1. See, Christ wants us to be witnessing this pattern in our life. Devoting ourselves to good works involves our witness. Yet we are also to have a consistent walk with Christ. That's where people should see Christ in us. People should be able to see from the consistency of our lives that we are Christians, by our love, by the Spirit's presence in our lives, and by our character. So it's by our witness, our walk, and our works. We should be known by our works. Paul says this in, to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He set us aside, set us apart, that we might devote ourselves to good works, that we might show the reality of Christ in us, that other people might be invited to participate and want what we have in Christ. Because we are participants in the divine life. We have been born again, born above, transformed by God, desperately seeking His presence in His person. I love how Psalm 42 says it, As a deer pants for the, for the water, so we pant for you. We long for God. We, we want to be with God entirely, to have this relationship with God because God is our heartbeat. It says in, in, in the New Testament that Jesus Christ is our life. He is our life. Not only does He convey life, He is life. He is just, he's the pathway of life, but He is life itself. Jesus said that. I am the way, the truth, and the life. But it also says when He who is our life appears, that we will be with Him. See, God saved us for a purpose. He saved us and made us participants, heirs with Him. He took us as paupers and made us princes. He saw us in our sin and slavery and helped us to be co-heir with the Savior. Not that we are saviors. We're not. We can't save ourselves. We are co-heirs with the Savior. 
the Son of God. God saved us for a purpose. He saved wretches like us. It was God's amazing grace that saved us, cleansed us, transformed us, and set us free from sin so that we might do good works and bring Him glory. We might do good works and people might see that in us and glorify our Father in heaven, as it says in Matthew chapter 5. And He can do it again. He can save anybody. You know that. There's nobody beyond the grace of God. I used to laugh when I would have certain people come into church and they, they would look up at the ceiling, and you could see they'd be really nervous. They didn't want people to talk to them. And I knew what they were thinking when they were looking at the ceiling. They weren't marring their architecture. They were wondering if the roof was going to cave in. Some of us feel that way. They're like, I'm at church. I haven't been at church in a long time. The roof's going to cave in. No, it's not. But I tell you something. You need to be prepared because God can save even you. God can't save me. He doesn't know what I've done. Oh, trust me. He knows. He knows, and He can save, and He can transform and he can make you clean in the sight of God. He took someone who was a master of a slave ship. I mean, the injustices that slaves went through. I don't know if you've ever witnessed any of this stuff or read some of the testimonials that were done. And even in the recent weeks, more evidence has come to light of what was taking place on slave ships. I mean, you have to understand, individuals were taken from their families, ripped away from their families in Africa, and then having to live in these box quarters chained to one another. I mean, people were systematically raped, abused, malnourished. No, slavery was reprehensible. And then they lived in these almost like boxes underneath the, the deck where there was cramped. They couldn't stand. You ever, and I, I, not that I'm advocating, but if you've ever seen the film Amistad, it is, don't watch it if you can't handle it. I mean, it's like the Schindler's List for the African-American community. And I mean that. It is, it's, it's deplorable. Matter of fact, slavery, after it had been declared illegal, it shows on the boat that these slaves in the, uh, were on the boat and the, the, the slave boat uh, captains saw that they could be overtaken rather quickly in this film. So rather than get caught with slaves, all these slaves are chained together. They chained them to a big giant rock, pushed it over, and they're drug under the water, drowned. Rather than be caught with slaves, they kill them all. See, this what some of the things that John Newton had least been aware of. He knew what it had, had done. He understood how bad he was in the sight of God. See, but the Bible says that all of us alike are under sin, not just him. All of us were rebellious and deserving of our punishment in the sight of God. And if it wasn't for God's mercy coming to us in Jesus Christ... And that grace being poured out richly through him, we would still be lost, deserving our condemnation. But God saved us. Isn't it amazing? And he can save you. It doesn't matter if you've never come to Christ or maybe you've prayed it before and you've never really truly understood it until this moment in time. But God can save you right now. Call out to him and he will save you and make you clean. It doesn't matter what you've done. There is no person in this room that was without sin. I love the story of Jesus with the woman caught in the act of adultery. They drag her before Jesus. They said, good teacher, what must, or teacher, what must we do? The law says that we should stone such a woman. And Jesus bends down, writes in the sand. He, goes, let, uh, he says, uh, let he who has no sin cast the first stone. Slowly, it says, the older ones dropped their stones first and walked away, and then the younger, leaving no one else. See, everyone has sin. Everyone comes from a sinful background. There's no one here that was born perfect. Only Jesus Christ was born perfect, and yet He chose to identify with us and save us from our sin. What great mercy. And He will save even now. Call out to Him, repent of your sin, believe in Him, and He will save you. It's a promise. Let's pray.
Our Father and our God, we are so grateful that you chose to lavish your mercy and save us who are sinners. We are so grateful this magisterial text as you spoke by the Holy Spirit through your Apostle Paul to Titus, that it could be spoken to us for all time, that we might be beneficiaries of this truth. And then we are invited to be participants in the kingdom of God, not because of anything that we have done, but because of your mercy solely exemplified in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And Lord, we know that you still are saving sinners. Any, everyone in this room who has trusted in you counts themselves among those, that group of people. We know what we have done. We know the evil that we have done. We have been rebellious. We have been fools. We've been led astray. We were, we were spending our days in malice and envy, hating by others and hating one another. And yet, you decided to save us, giving your son to die for us and offering anyone the opportunity to believe and trust in you that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Lord, I know there's people here today that have never trusted in you. I pray that they might trust in you right now, that they might call out to you, that they might say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I know it. Save me and transform me, and you will. Lord, we rejoice in what you're doing in our church, in our midst, and we pray that you do so much more. Lord, we expect you to be God, to show yourself as God in this place. Remove any unbelief in our heart. Remember, remove anything that is keeping your spirit from working in our midst. Convict us of our sin. Show us that we might repent and be restored unto you, that you might receive glory both now and forevermore in our midst. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.